Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers. How many of you would truly have loved having Fred Rogers as an actual neighbor? You know, I, I know this past week was, was Halloween night. I heard at, at his home, if you went to his home, in fact, one of the, the writers for the U.S. News uh, and World Report lived actually next within the neighborhood of the, of the Rogers, and they gave out full-size candy bars. So there you go. I mean, it just, just right there alone is a reason to be a neighbor. But, you know, many of you, grandparents, parents, you entrusted your kids to Mr. Rogers as you plopped him down in front of OPB and let them spend a magical moment in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood and the land of make-believe and traveling with the trolley. And you entrusted them to Mr. Rogers because you knew that when they watched that show that there wasn't going to be anything hurtful said. There wasn't going to be anything hateful said. It was going to be a happy moment for the kids as they pretended to be in the neighborhood of Mr. Rogers. You know, Fred Rogers was an ordained minister with the United Presbyterian Church And his church wasn't made of sticks and bricks. His church wasn't the gold-accented furniture of the traditional Christian television that you might think of. No, his was through the public broadcasting system into the hearts and living rooms of children over a period of 30-plus years that he daily made visits to the neighborhood. And as a minister, while he didn't have the usual platform that I would have to preach Jesus, I thought it was interesting that when the NBC Nightly News did a report on the day of of, uh, his passing, the anchor, his name was Bob Saw, the reporter said this, the real Mr. Rogers never preached, never even mentioned God on his show, and then he concluded by saying he never had to. He never had to because his life was a life of love, of God's message shining through him. It was a message of hope and what it really means to be a good neighbor. And In fact, I think it's for that reason that Fred Rogers, TV Guide, had, uh, you know, they have their, their standard poll, and he was the 35th of the top 50 all-time television stars was Mr. Rogers. Why? Why was he so favorable in the hearts of most Americans? In fact, to the point where prior to his passing, he had visited some of our prestigious colleges in our United States of America. And at one particular one that's on YouTube that I watched, he came out on the stage and began his session just like you saw on the screen. He was singing his neighborhood song. And and as he was singing, the whole room started joining, singing with him. And that led into about a five-minute standing ovation for Fred Rogers. Why? Because he seemed to have something that attracted a lot of Americans. His heart of being a good neighbor. And I want to just share a few quotes, and we're going to get to the Word of God. This isn't the church of Mr. Rogers, okay? We we will get to the Bible. But I think that he shared with us some wisdom that I think if we could just do a little bit of this, and I know where his wisdom came from. His wisdom came from the Word of God. And the faith that he so deeply and richly had in God. But listen to some of the words that he shared with us that are now timeless. Love isn't a state of perfect caring. It is an active noun like struggle. To love someone is to strive to accept that person exactly the way he or she is right here and now. How sad it is that we give up on people who are just like us. He later says this, I believe that appreciation is a holy thing. 
That when we look for what's best in a person, we happen to be with at that moment, we're doing what God does all the time. So in loving and appreciating our neighbor, we're participating in something sacred. And Fred Rogers participated in that something sacred every single day. And while I grew up singing that opening theme song, just like many of you did as a kid, I I found myself reflecting on Mr. Rogers, which, by the way, wasn't a point of inspiration for this series that we're starting. But when I was thinking about the art of neighboring, I mean, how can you think about a neighborhood and not think about Fred Rogers, right? I mean, come on. It's like this kind of like peanut butter and jelly, neighborhoods and Mr. Rogers. But I was struck by his opening theme song and by the closing phrase, won't you be my neighbor? You know, I think if the truth would be told in the hearts of a lot of people in our community, there's a deep longing. And what they would say if they put that deep longing into words, they would say, won't you be my neighbor? Isn't it true that we've become far too busy, far too isolated, far too self-absorbed, that we've lost that wonder that Mr. Rogers shared every single day when he invited you into his neighborhood and spoke to you through that TV as though you were the only person on his mind. Wouldn't it be wonderful if that's the world we could be once again? A world of good neighbors. But as I thought about that phrase, won't you be my neighbor, I, I, I thought about the fact that, well, what does it mean to be a good neighbor? What does that even look like? And we're going to spend some time over the series kind of talking about that because we're going to kick off this new series, Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is really about the art of neighboring. And, and friends, this is a lost art. Some of you, you think back to your childhood, some of you that are maybe grandparents today, you, you think back to your childhood and, and you can think about those certain neighborhoods that you grew up in that you loved. And you loved it because there was a real sense of neighborliness in your neighborhood. But isn't it amazing today That in my neighborhood especially, when 5 o'clock rolls around, around 5.30, do you know what I see? I see garage doors open, I see cars go in, and I see garage doors close. And the only time I happen to see my neighbors is when they're out doing yard work. Which most of them, by the way, have contracted out to a landscaping firm who will come and take care of their yard for them. I have one neighbor that I, I, I tell you I have scarcely seen except in her vehicle when it comes to the house and leaves. What has happened, friends, in our community that we have become so private, so closed off, so isolated? And isn't there something that we as the church should feel a mandate to change? You know, Neighborhood Church, which we have just adopted last month, right? We became Neighborhood Church officially back in October. But Neighborhood Church is about to enter a whole new season of ministry effectiveness and fruitfulness that I don't think we've ever yet seen as we transition to our new campus. As we move from the outskirts of town right into a neighborhood. And that location change from here to our new location, which by the way is coming along, a little slower than I thought, but it's coming along. We plan to be in there in the year 2017. I'm just going to leave it at that now, all right? So... It's coming along, but you know what? That, that, it's not just a location change. I want you to hear the heart of your pastor today. This is not just a location change. I believe what God is calling us to is a complete paradigm change, a shift from how we have been doing ministry to how God wants us to do ministry, how God wants us to do life. 
as Neighborhood Church. And I'm excited, and in fact, I'm eager about what God is going to do and what God is, 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 is kind of birthing in my own spirit as I think about and pray about the potential we have as we move into a neighborhood. But you see, Neighborhood Church cannot, and I will not let it just be another church with another name on another sign. Neighborhood church just can't be something we stick on bulletins and stick on the side of a wall. It needs to become the very essence of who we are. But listen, it'll never happen if you and I settle to live isolated lives of convenience. It will never happen. Neighborhood church will only happen when we each individually decide, I'm going to be a good neighbor right where God has placed me, right where I live. And when we come together as a corporate church, We're going to be good neighbors right where we live. We're going to do good, and we're going to to make that neighborhood glad that we moved into the neighborhood. And my goal for the series, friends, is is to help us learn the art of neighboring and how we can apply that art into our daily, not just Sunday life, but our daily life. I want us to live in such a way that our community around us would look at us and see something like they would see in Fred Rogers that's like, I want to know that guy. I want them to look at us and the way we live our lives and the way that we care, and I want them to say, won't you be my neighbor? It's not so much us asking them, hey, will you be our neighbors? I want to turn the table, and I want them to see the way we live and the way we love, and I want them to be so motivated to say, I like who you are. I like what you do. I may not believe everything you believe. I may not even agree with everything that you believe, but I like what you are doing, and I want to be your neighbor. That's what I want to see happen through this kind of series. But Mr. Rogers isn't the only one who tried to show us and teach us what it means to be a good neighbor. In fact, thousands of years, even before Mr. Rogers ever thought about that song, ever sat down to the piano and skillfully played and wrote that song and sang it at the very opening of his special daily dose of love that actually took place and based in Canada first and then eventually came down here in the United States of America. Before those words were ever sung, Jesus gave us an example of it. In fact, when Jesus was asked to reduce everything in the Bible, which by, in his time, the Bible would have been the Old Testament, right? There hadn't been a New Testament yet to go to. But when he was asked to reduce everything, to boil everything down in Scripture, he shared something remarkable that has a lot to do with the art of neighboring. I want you to open your Bibles and go to Matthew 22. And if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seat in front of you. And I encourage you to take that. If you don't own a Bible, it is our gift to you. Please take it. We have large print and small print, whatever works for your eyesight right now, okay? Just take it, our gift to you. Or maybe you have your smart device and you happen to have downloaded the YouVersion Bible app. If you did, then if you go to the YouVersion Bible app and you go into Menu and then More, look for uh, Events. And in events, you should see Oak Creek if your locations are enabled. It should find us, and then our notes are right there as well. But listen to the word of the Lord. Matthew 22. One of them, an expert in the law. This is a guy, by the way, who has given his life to the law. If there's any question about the law, they go to the expert because he knows it inside and out, backwards, forwards. He knows it by memory. He's an expert. And when the expert in the law tested him with this question, teacher, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, by the way, this expert in the law had his own answer to his own question. 
He knew what every Jewish man, every Jewish woman, child would answer. Because there was a core doctrine within the Jewish faith found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in fact, Jesus begins answering with that question. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now, if he had ended there, the expert would have been happy. And he would have said, good job, teacher. That's, that's good. But Jesus, as he always does, does more than just answer your question. He makes you think. And he broadens it. Lest we become so focused on just the letter of the law, he broadens it to the letter of love or the law of love. And he goes on. And the second is like it. Now, if I was the expert, I would have said, time out, I only asked for the greatest. And which Jesus would have said, I am still giving you the greatest. Because even though these are numbered, the first and the second, he basically elsewhere in Scripture, recorded in the gospel, says the second is like it. In other words, the second is of equal value. I cannot separate these two. And what does he say? Love your neighbor as yourself. And he summarizes it with this. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the basis for these two commandments is found in the Old Testament. He was quoting actual scripture. So Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 is where we find his first part, which is part of the Jewish uh, core doctrine, the Shema, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And that would have been the typical answer to what is the greatest commandment. Leviticus 19, 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's where we find these two commands. You'll notice that when the giving of the Ten Commandments happened, it wasn't like it was number one command, honor God with all your, or love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second one is love your neighbor. It didn't play out that way, did it? But you can summarize all of the commands under these two categories, loving God and loving your neighbor. In fact, Jesus said all of them hang. I'd like you to imagine for a moment a door, or maybe it's a cabinet door in your kitchen, And that door happens to work when you open and close it because it is suspended by two items. What are they called? They're called hinges. You ever had a cabinet door that had only one hinge? Doesn't generally work very well if you have just one hinge. The door doesn't swing as well. It tends to get bound up. It doesn't open well. It needs two hinges to function the way it's supposed to function. And that's what Jesus is basically saying. There is a way in which we should live. And when you live this way, your life will swing well. It's love God, love your neighbor. All of Scripture hangs on these two principles. In his book, Crazy Love, Francis Chan writes these words. Following Jesus is not about diligently keeping a set of rules or conjuring up the moral fortitude to lead good lives. It's about loving God and enjoying him. But lest we think we can love God and live any way we want, Jesus told us very clearly, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's John 14, 15. The love of God is in the first commandment is made practical in the love of our neighbors in the second commandment. And John actually told us that if we don't love the people that we can see around us, then we don't love God whom we can't see. The main point is really clear. 
The most important commandments, if, in other words, what Jesus says matters most is loving God and loving your neighbors. Everything that has been ever said by God is summed up in these two phrases. So what would happen, friends, if we woke up every day and asked these two questions? One, how can I love God better today than I did yesterday? Question one, how can I love God better today than I did yesterday? You know what this causes us to do? It causes us to break the stale, plateaued Christian growth that all of us live. This would cause us to ask, what is it that I could be doing, I could be thinking, that I should be saying, or I should be reading, or I should be meditating on? What is it that I would do to love God better today than I did yesterday? And a lot of us maybe don't intentionally think through this, but have some kind of plan of action to do so. And this is a great question to ask, but we, can have, we also have to ask the second question, which is this, how can I love my neighbors better today than I did yesterday? Chances are you have never thought about this question ever. How can I love my neighbors better today than I did yesterday? You might have thought to yourself, how can I tolerate my neighbors better today maybe than I did yesterday? Or you might have flipped it and said, what more can my neighbors do today than they did yesterday to irritate me? But scarcely do we begin our day by asking these two questions. What can I do today better, or today, today to better love God and to better love my neighbor? Friends, what would happen if we got these two things that Jesus said matters most right? What would happen? I can tell you this. It seems that we would have nothing to lose except for our self-centeredness, our desire for privacy and isolation, and our comfort. By the way, the very things that Jesus gave up when he came to this world to be one of us, what do I have to gain? Christ-likeness. And we'll come back to that in a moment to speak to that. But the problem is that we have turned these commandments into some kind of Christian slogans. Love God, love your neighbor. We put them on t-shirts, we put them on bumper stickers, we paint them on distressed wood and hang them on the walls of our house, yet we fail to do any of this. Maybe we love God, but do we really love our neighbor as ourselves? The fact is, Jesus has given us a very practical plan to do both of these things, and we're going to look at that over these next weeks. And I've, I guarantee you, friends, that if we as a body of believers, and, I, and when I say we, I've got to tell you that as a pastor, I'm not alone in, in desiring to be a, a person who loves God and loves our neighbors. There's a lot of pastors in our community who have that same heart. And if all of our faith communities could get this right, I guarantee you this, it has the potential to change our community. There was a gathering of pastors in Denver, like I have a gathering of pastors I'm a part of here in Albany, and, the, and this gathering of pastors in Denver had, had joined together because they wanted to talk about what is it that we as churches could do to better serve our city. And so when they got together, they invited the mayor to come and speak to this group of ministers. And as the mayor was talking, he, he touched on items that 
were concerns and challenges that the community was facing, things like at-risk children. There was areas where there was very poor livability. Uh, there, were, there was child hunger. There was drug and alcohol abuse, loneliness, elderlies that were in shut-ins that, that had nobody to check in on them. There was homelessness. There was broken homes, and the list goes on and on and on. And by the way, friends, very much the very same things we deal with in our city today. As I talk to pastors, as we invite mayors, as we invite principals, as we invite people from DHS, to come and talk to our group of pastors, we hear a lot of the same stories. But what this mayor said to this group of pastors was earth-shaking for them. And I quote from that meeting what what the mayor said. He said, the majority of the issues that our community is facing would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just figure out a way to become a community of great neighbors. And the pastors in the room that day, one of them in particular, heard that statement, and he said this, I remember sitting there, and before I could think, I just blurted out, am I the only one here who was a little bit embarrassed? I mean, here we are asking the mayor how we can best serve the city, and he basically tells us that if we would be, it would be great if we could just get our people to obey the second half of the great commandment. In other words, he's thinking the mayor's basically saying, and he may not know that he's saying this, but he's basically saying if you Christians would just do what Jesus said you would do, it would transform our community. Now think about that. I know we look at our culture and go, man, there's no way. It's a losing battle for Christianity in our culture today. And we, we bury ourselves into our homes and into our churches, and we, we recognize it's a lost battle. But friends, that is not the case. Because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I just think that our methods have been faulty. And we look for programs to fix stuff rather than doing what Jesus just said to do in our everyday, ordinary life. Central to genuinely obeying and following God is loving our neighbors as we love ourselves. And I'm convinced about this, friends. That loving our neighbors is the best way to respond to the biggest criticism of Christianity today. When you think about what our culture thinks about Christianity, in fact, when I think about people who are still Christians but don't participate in organized religion, their greatest criticism is what? Not necessarily hypocrisy, although that's that's the nutshell, okay, that's the basic big problem, okay? But what, what does it come down to? Christians hate They're judgmental, they're mean-spirited, they're intolerant. Can I just remind you that we've earned a lot of those statements? We've earned it, we've deserved it. We've not been very good neighbors in our community. Now, I, I know that there's a real problem in our community. I know there's real issues culturally. I know that there is sin, that it continues to increase, and there's an increase of wickedness. But how many of you know that just cursing darkness doesn't change it. Shining a light does. And the art of being a neighbor, I think Jesus was onto something. When he said, hey, if you love God, it's gonna bleed out into loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And when you do that, that's gonna change the mindset of people. Because I know it changed the mindset of people in the day in which Jesus ministered. You know, the Bible tells us that we love because God first loved us, right? You guys know that. That to be true. It's biblical. 
But have you ever thought about this, that, that shouldn't we also be able to, to love our neighbor, to be a good neighbor because God was a good neighbor to us? Let me just remind you biblically here for a moment that God was the original good neighbor. He didn't wear a cardigan. He didn't wear keds. He didn't have a trolley. Okay? But he was the original good neighbor. Let me explain that when God, we look at Genesis chapter 1 and we see that in Genesis 1 that God created the heavens and the earth and God made a special place called the Garden of Eden. And what did he do? He created an environment. He created a community. And then what did he do? He put people in the community, man and woman, and God had relationship with them. And I wish those could be, in fact, friends, that day is coming once again when we'll have that perfect union with God like he designed in the garden. But God created a sense of community and he would be with them. In fact, the the day that Adam and Eve fell flat on their faces in disobedience, God still did what? He came down to meet with them. He was a good neighbor, even in the brokenness, but we know that our sin caused a rift in the relationship we had with God. But can I tell you that from Genesis 3 on, we see a God who is pursuing relationship with his people. We don't see a God who's wiped his hands of the whole thing and said, you guys figure it out on your own now. No, we see a God who purposefully engaged his people, who moved closer to them. Let me give you an example. After the Garden of Eden, and they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, we begin to see the story take place where Abram is called of God to become the father of Israel, basically, but, but also in that, becoming the father of many nations. And that through his seed, all the world would be blessed. That's still, that's, I'll get to that point in a minute. So we see Abraham and God calling him and establishing him in a land of promise. Then we, we fast forward the story to Moses. Right? Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai where God's presence comes upon the mountain with great signs and wonders and God speaks to Moses as, as he would speak to a friend. And through that then Moses was instructed to build a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a fancy tent-like structure and in that tabernacle God's presence would come and dwell in the Holy of Holies. God was dwelling among his people in the wilderness and then as they entered their promised land We know that under Solomon's leadership, a temple was built, and it was the temple where God's presence dwelt. But only once a year could the high priest and the high priest alone go into that Holy of Holies where the very glory and presence of God was to offer the atonement for the nation of Israel. And then from that point, we begin to see the prophet's ministry taking place. And one of them, Isaiah, said, there's a day coming when God will be Emmanuel. He will be with us. So we see God moving through Abraham, Moses, the tabernacle, the temple. He gives promise to the Messiah that there's a God, there's a day coming when God will come as a redeemer and as a restorer. And then we see in John chapter 1, and I love the way that the message translation throws this phrase, John 1.14, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Don't you just love that idea? God in all of his glory and splendor, God the Son, comes clothed in humanity and moves into the neighborhood. And he does good in the neighborhood, if you know what I'm talking about, right? When he came, he ministered to people in such a way that those who were far from God were very interested in what Jesus was doing. And if that wasn't close enough, then when Jesus left, he promised us another helper. 
And Paul speaks to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God dwells in your midst? So what's happening? A God who continually pursues his people to have relationship with them, even when we were far from him, he pursued us. And so, friends, the key action for the church is to lean into this way of relationship, this relational way of life, and to follow that same movement of God. It's not enough for us just to say yes to the truth of that love. We have to also walk in that way of love. And here it is. Love should move us closer to our neighbors. Love should always move us relationally forward to engage with people. Because that's the kind of love our God had. And I want you to notice that God didn't just come for the righteous, the ones who had it all together, the ones who smelt good, looked good, went to church, the ones who were the poster children of Christianity. That's not who God came for. In fact, we see it best exemplified in Jesus. And I want you to see the context in which Jesus does this. In Mark chapter 2, verse 15. What had recently happened is that Jesus was calling his disciples, and one of the ones he calls is Matthew, also called Levi, who happens to be a tax collector. They are so, tax collectors are, are, are so bad, they have their own category. Okay? There's like sinners and then tax collectors. That's the kind of guy Jesus taps on the shoulder and says, why don't you follow me? And so Levi follows him, and he throws a party later that evening at his home. And this is the context, all right? And while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, notice in Scripture what it says, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him. Levi? No. Who's the him? Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Many what? Disciples? Yeah, probably, but many sinners and tax collectors who followed Jesus. Why? If he was God-made flesh, why would sinners and tax collectors be pursuing him? Because he was the one who first pursued, and he moved into the neighborhood. And look at what it says, verse 16, when the, when the, tax, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners... And tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You get the idea. The good Jew would never do that. They hang around with their own kind. Like attracts like, and all they like is the like. But here's Jesus upsetting that whole way of doing things. And Jesus, on hearing this, said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What I love about this is Jesus didn't just tell us the greatest commandments from some platform, from some some kind of golden throne where it's like, here's what you should do. What I love is that he did it. He hang out with sinners and tax. They were drawn to him. Why? Because he was a good neighbor who put on flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood and changed people's perceptions about who God is and what God does. And the sinners moved closer to Jesus. They loved being around him. And the Jesus way, from his example, the Jesus way is to move in close to those who aren't close to him. That is the Jesus way. If you want to be a Christ follower, guess what we do? We move in close to those who aren't close to him, but we don't do that. 
We've been taught by good Christian parents oftentimes to avoid those who are not like us. Because bad company corrupts good morals, right? We, we can't be with those kind of people. But we need to be people who are willing to do community and do life with those who need him the most. If I understand Scripture correctly, my goal is to be like Jesus. Would you agree? Is that what, not what the Holy Spirit does? The sanctifying work of the Spirit is to be like Jesus. And if we understand that to be true, then what did Jesus do? He rubbed shoulders. In fact, I love the way the message also says that he got cozy with the sinners. All right? He wasn't afraid to do life with them, to get into their space. Not to say, okay, here's my house, sinners. If you want to come, then dress this certain way. And then on this day only, show up. And I'll meet with you. Aren't you glad that wasn't the way he did it? Because the way of Jesus was to be out with people. To spend time with those who were broken. To be with the infirmed, the diseased, the demon-possessed to be approachable, available. He was never too busy. His life was interruptible. Why? Because he had a mission. The mission was to seek and save the lost. He didn't come for those who were healthy. He came for the sick. Friends, how can we continue to miss this? When we call ourselves the body of Christ, how can we miss this? How can we become comfortable coming to church on Sunday, hearing these kinds of things, and then going back and doing nothing with it? How can we be comfortable going into our homes, opening our garage doors, parking inside, and closing, and never knowing the names or the concerns of our neighbors? How can we do this when we're way too busy to take time to know the backstory of what's going on in our coworkers' life? of why they seem to be so irritable, edgy? Why is it that we don't take the time to understand what's going on in our neighbor whose yard is way too cluttered, his grass is way too tall, and he seems to not care for anything? When did we understand why that was happening? Friends, this is what I know to be true. If Christ-likeness is my goal, I cannot obtain it without loving my neighbor. I just can't. You can't separate that from Christ-likeness. I love the way Fred Rogers says it as we kind of bookend with some quotes from Fred. He said that we live in a world in which we need to share responsibility. It's easy to say it's not my child, not my community, not my problem, not my world. But then there are those who see the need and respond. I consider those people my heroes. As we begin this series, friends, here's here's my prayer. That you would take some time this week to see, to see, to actually see neighbors around you, to see people around you. I I know what happens. We get busy. We have these things that we do. We go through all these emotions, and we really don't have time to look beyond our own circumstances, to look beyond our own busy schedules, to look into the lives of our neighbors. And we perceive because they go in their house, we never see them, that they have no interest in knowing more about what Jesus is like or about who we are, and so we don't even pay attention or look. 
But my challenge this week is would you just lift your eyes and look? Look at your coworkers. Look at your neighbors physically located right around your house. Look at the people you drive by, that you buy coffee from, that, that you get gas from, that you check out your groceries at. And take time to look in their eyes, to be kind, to engage them where they are. Because every one of them, deep inside their hearts, they're asking, won't you be my neighbor? I need somebody who knows what I'm going through, somebody who cares. Might that person be you? What we loved about Fred Rogers was the way he could talk through a TV screen and talk as though he cared about you. When's the last time we were able to be that for the people around us? We'll talk more about what it looks like to be a neighbor. But friends, we've got to start with seeing them because they're all around us. And when you lift your eyes, do you only see people who are like you, who live in the neighborhood like you, who have the house like you, the car like you, the pets like you? And is that the only people you see? Then you need to adjust your vision because God's vision is bigger than that. And if I could learn to see people the way God sees people, that would change immediately the way that I think about them. Yes, they might be broken. They might live a lifestyle contrary to what you know to be true of Scripture. But can you still love them as God loves them? Can you love them as you love yourself? Can you hear them saying, as they look at your life, won't you be my neighbor? Won't you take time to know? Won't you take time to care? Friends, it's time. It's time to learn the art of neighboring once again. And we're going to do that each week as we come back. But we've got to take time right now and pray about this. So I'd like us, if we could, to stand as we conclude in prayer. Father, I, I know... I know that you know exactly what's going on around our lives. There's nothing hidden from your view, nothing hidden from your sight. You know what's happening in the lives of our neighbors, our coworkers, the people in our community, the person we see through our daily routines. You know what's going on, but we are so blind to it because we are so busy about our own life that we miss the deep longing each of those might have, saying, can you just take a minute and be my neighbor? Can you just care? Can you love? But Lord, we know that asks of us. That asks of our privacy, of our convenience, of our comfort. But those were all things you willingly shed to come be with us. And Christ's likeness means an ability and a willingness to do the same. So, Lord, from the very beginning of this series, I I pray you would touch our hearts deeply with this truth. That this week, if nothing else, we will pay more attention to what's happening around us. That we'll see our neighbors that have been out of our line of sight. And beyond seeing what they look like, God, may we see what they're going through. May we find ways that we can creatively build relationships with them that communicates your love and care, 
Not with some agenda that we want to force them to come to church, but God, just because you love them, and we too should do the same. And in so doing, it will change that person's perspective of what a Christian's all about. So help us, Lord. Help us. Help us to be a good neighbor. In Jesus' name, amen.